you could imagine um, a child waking up their parents and uh, bringing to their parents the plan for that day. And uh, I don't know what your kids might put on that plan if you have them, um, but imagine waking up the uh, parents that we have the day planned, the whole thing. We're going to get donuts for breakfast. We're going to go swimming. Um, after that, we're going to go to In-N-Out because we get some delicious burgers. Parents, we're going to Disneyland after that. Uh, we're going to eat there in the park. Pretty expensive, but we're going to do that. We're going to stay for the fireworks, come home. Guess what? We're going to watch a movie. Um, maybe, maybe there might be a chance you might tolerate a little of that kind of thing on their birthday. Maybe if you had told them, you can have every, any, anything you want. Um, not our kids, but uh, maybe your kids. In general, we would laugh at them. Ah, it's kind of cute, right? Like, what has got into my little one? Look at that confidence. Um, but what if then they threw a fit? Right? They throw themselves on the floor, shrieking when they realize they are not going to get what they want. See, imagine for a second that that child thought that they really were going to get what they had planned. That declaring this ideal day would make it true. And so suddenly, something that's childish starts becoming really foolish, presumptuous, proud. Who is this child to think that they can order our day? Brothers and sisters, sometimes we're like children when we plan out our days, our years, confident that we have the resources and the permission to get what we want. Assuming that God is going to accommodate our plans. But that is not the kind of maturity we're aiming for. That's, that's not what God saved us for. The way we make our plans reveals a lot about our maturity. Right? That child is not mature. The way we make plans reveals a lot about our, our maturity. What may be cute for a child is pride for an adult. This morning, we're going to see the foolishness of how we often make plans and how, Lord willing, we'll learn together. Instead, we're going to learn what our starting point should be. So we're going to see the foolishness of how we often make plans, and we're going to learn a kind of a different starting point for how we view the future, whether the next day or the next years. Our brother Clifton read from the book of James this, this morning. James wrote to early Jewish churches, maybe as early as 10 years after Christ re resurrected from the dead and returned to heaven to reign. These Jewish churches were the, in Gentile areas north uh, of, of, of Israel. And James, who was a leader of the early church, most likely the half-brother of Jesus. As a pastor, James wrote to these churches because they hadn't yet become what they could be. They hadn't yet grown to maturity, just like us, right? We are growing by God's grace, but we're not yet what God saved us to be. We're not yet conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, these churches that James wrote to, being, being made up 
of Jews were, uh, um, were externally moral. So they were people who had grown up knowing the law. But James is raising for them the standard on what maturity is. They had a Jewish background, but there were um, many ways that they really hadn't been transformed yet. And one of those ways is very common to us. It's our viewing of our independence, the way we think about the future, the way we think about our plans. So James 4, and uh, we read verses 1 through 10 again last week, is kind of the emotional peak of the letter. It's a call to, to, to humility, and it, and it culminates with this call for repentance, to humble themselves before God. Now, we saw last week in verses 11 and 12 that James doesn't let up. So although we kind of got to this point in verses 1 through 10 where he's calling us to be humble and to wail and weep and mourn and to not laugh but to cry. Um, But we saw last week in verses 11 and 12 that James didn't let up. It wasn't like, great, I've called you to humility and now we're done. Instead, he, he attacked pride a different way in the way that we judge, in the way that we speak about others. Well, in verses 13 to 17, James continues to explore this topic of pride. But he begins with a statement, and if you have your Bibles, if it's still not open, James 4 verse 13, begins with a statement that's going to kind of sound pretty normal. I think if you hear it, you're not going to think anything's wrong with it. We say this kind of thing all the time, but with less... uh, Um, vagueness. So listen to James 4.13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And so really, we see there, it's, it's an expression of a very typical plan. It's an expression of a very typical plan. He keeps it vague because he wants it to apply to all of us. As you listen to James, there's nothing particularly surprising in his expression. It's a lot like what a lot of us have said over the years. Maybe after high school, someone might say, well, I'm attending so-and-so university, and after I finish my bachelor's, I'm going to pursue a master's degree at such-and-such and and get such-and-such a job in this field, right? Uh, I know that if you just graduated from high school, you've become practiced in saying this, because people ask all the time, what are you going to do? Or maybe after your wedding, we get in the practice of saying, well, for so many years, we're going to work off and pay off such and such a debt amount and save so much for a down payment and um, get a house in this neighborhood. And when we've settled down for so long, we'll have some kids. Or maybe you're further along at such and such an age, I'm going to retire and We'll probably downsize at some point if we haven't already moved to where the grandkids are. That's a lot like what James is saying here. We've said those kinds of things, just announcing our plans. But James tips his hand early that all is not okay. When he says, come now, you who say. And so come now is a call to attention. And it's uh, even brusque, abrupt. the very least, it's listen up, pay close attention, come now. 
Now, the actual language that James uses, it couldn't be more general. Nearly anyone in any generation could announce a plan like this. It may not sound off or wrong in any way. But this statement could also be said by an atheist, right? Someone who doesn't believe God exists at all. Could say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade to make a profit. That should be a warning sign to us. As expressed, as written here, this plan is godless. As if the person saying it exists independent of God. As it's written here, it's just an expression of autonomy, of self-rule. Without thought to God's power, without mention of his permission. There's no concern here for God's pleasure. It's really just worldly words expressing worldly goals relying upon worldly means. Words that would be just as, really, I'm going to say just as much in the mouth of the rebels, really more at home in the mouth of those who don't believe in God than those who have submitted to him. Now the problem isn't in making plans. The problem isn't in a desire for profit. It's the speaker's confidence. The future tense is repeated throughout this verse. It could be translated, we will go, we will spend, we will trade, we will make a profit. This is what we're going to do. And it's all going to go according to my plan. The problem is self-confidence and independence. The speaker in this is sovereign. They go where they like as long as they like to get what they like. That's sounding a lot like that child in the beginning intro. In their presumption, we expect a certain outcome. We've got the time plan to day or tomorrow, the location, such and such a town, duration a year there, and our work reward are all under our control. As it's written here, it's, I believe and I I can accomplish through my ability. I can execute my own vision of reality. I can make this happen. And how many of us have, have similarly announced our life plans? And probably like the speaker here, you weren't intent on high treason, right? It's just, it's just what we as humans do. We think, we're in, we think this is in our charge. I can tell you what I'm going to do. In fact, we may even look down on those who don't have a plan, who don't have the foresight, the quick answer of what they're going to do in the next four years. But don't you have life goals? So we're going to look at three errors here in verses 14 to 16 that James exposes, but we're going to get to verse 17 too. In fact, about half the sermon is going to be in 17, so you can kind of pace yourself here. There's three errors exposed. The first is in verse 14, and we forget that we are finite and mortal. We forget that we are finite, we're limited, and that we are mortal, we're going to die. Verse 14 says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You're finite. James begins not so much criticizing that we make plans, but criticizes our confidence in the way that we make plans. So we, we forget reality, that, that we're finite, that we're limited in power and we're limited in knowledge. 
we forget that we're not in charge of tomorrow. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow does not belong to us. Our, our assertions and our plans don't make something true. We say we will, but really, what are we doing? Like, what is a plan? It's just expressing a desire, right? It's just, just saying, I want. Because it's not true. Proverbs 27, verse 1 says, Do not boast about, about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Proverbs 27, 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. You don't know. You may have plans, but that's not true. It's just a plan. This kind of godless, as expressed, confidence about tomorrow is just trying to forget that we're creatures. It's just like, like, like closing our eyes and saying, I'm really strong. I'm not. I'm really tall. Right? That's, that's, that's just a denial of reality. Not only are we not infinite, we're also immortal. We're, we're not immortal, sorry. We don't even know if we'll be alive tomorrow. The second half of verse 14 says, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We're a mist, or that word could be translated smoke, a vapor. We're like June gloom that burns off by 8 a.m. or July gloom now. We're like a breath exhaled on a cold morning. Seen, but then gone. A puff of smoke just carried away by the wind. Psalm 39, verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, just a few inches. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely... A man goes about as a shadow, surely for nothing there in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Our lives are brief. We're reminded of Jesus' parable in Luke 12, verses 16 to 20. And this man had all kinds of plans too. He, Jesus told him a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I've got nowhere to store my crops. I've got so much money. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Years, Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him in this parable, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? What folly to live as if we are independent of God. When he may call you to account for your life at any moment. Now, the brevity of life should make us want meaning, right? We should look for meaning. We need to know why we are here. To wonder, well, what should I do? What is my life about? When our lives are so uncertain and fleeting, that makes sense. That's wisdom. Right, to realize, I do not know how much longer I have. Where are the answers for my life's questions? 
Is the answer just to get in as much enjoyment out of life now, or is the answer to save for the future? Who's going to tell us how we should live? That's the wonder of God's word, of his revelation to us, right? That God has spoken into our lives to tell finite, mortal people, this is how you are to live. And we're going to talk more about that. So the first error that James points out is um, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You're limited. And what's your life? You're a mist that vanishes. You don't know how long you're going to live. The, verse 15 has another error, and that is ignoring God's sovereignty. Ignoring God's sovereignty. James 4 verse 15 says, Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Our plan making must begin with a high view of God as, as ruler, as king, as the one in charge. What happens is a matter of, of God's desire and his decisions, of his pleasure and the permission that he gives. If the Lord wills, we will live. Whether we open our eyes tomorrow is in God's hands. It's God who keeps us alive. It's his sovereign decision. It's a matter of his kingdom, of his reign. He's the one who commands my heart to beat and it's still going. And he commands that car to stop at the red light when it does instead of tearing through, as most cars do. At least they seem to. Now God uses secondary means to accomplish his will. You know, he keeps a heart beating even if we've had too many cheeseburgers. He keeps us safe even as that person flies by looking at their phone and completely ignores the red light, right? But God is the one who's sovereignly working through our choices to accomplish his will, sometimes despite them and sometimes, I mean, ultimately through someone's choices. We can do nothing apart from God's sovereign permission. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Your plans are just plans. They're, they're not reality. It's the Lord's purposes. It's his decisions that will stand. If the Lord wills, it's not just a, a saying that we tack on, right? It's, it's not that that child shouldn't say, If the Lord wills, I'm going to get donuts and swimming, and Disneyland, and fireworks, and still watch a movie when we get home, right? If the Lord wills, it's not a ticket so that we can daydream and make our plans and just kind of put that on there like a little charm, a good luck charm. What we say, it, it, it should reveal our hearts that we're willing whatever God has planned. In Acts 18.21, we see the Apostle Paul, uh, as he leaves Ephesus, he says, I will return to you if God wills. Romans 1.10, and, uh, uh, Paul writes to the Romans, it's always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Really, see how everything, every decision he has, the plans he's looking forward to is a matter of God's will. If God wills, I'll come to you. 1 Corinthians 16.7 is another example. I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord Per, permits that they realize that all of these decisions, we're going to have lunch together if the Lord wills. We're going to have life group tonight 
if the Lord wills. Now, that doesn't mean we have to tack that on as a saying every time we say we're going to do anything. But at the same time, out of our heart, the mouth speaks. We should have that attitude. Now, this, of course, means that we're going to be concerned with how God reveals his will to us in his word. Like, what does he want, right? Not just what does he decree is going to happen, but what does he want to happen? No one would say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to embezzle some money, some, some funds. Or if the Lord wills, I'm going to commit adultery, right? We know those things are not what God wills. Our first desire has to be, if we're going to say that, for what falls within God's revealed desires for his servants. A commentator writes, naturally means that divine moral guidelines will be followed and divine goals sought as one plans conscious of the divine will. That we know that God has desires for us, but, it's, but I also like that he says, and divine goals sought. And we're going to talk more about that. What is, what is my purpose here? Like, why does God have me in this earth? Our planning should be done with, with humility, in submission to God whose desires matter most. Now, it's neat here. Planning isn't the problem, right? In verse 15, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Right? So planning isn't the problem. But our plans are to be made right there as we're sitting in the king's throne room with an eye to the king's pleasure, to fulfill the king's mandate, looking to the king for permission, if it pleases the king. That's how we should be making our plans. So the second error there is ignoring God's sovereignty. The first is forgetting that we are finite and mortal. The third error we see in verse 16. It's, it's strong here. Um, the error is boasting in our arrogance. Boasting in our arrogance. Ver, ver, verse 16 says, As it is, the way you're currently, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, if you're like me, uh, you might be kind of tempted to excuse the oversight uh, in this plan making. So we kind of like, oh, yeah, I was making plans, and I need to remember that I'm, that I'm mortal, that I'm dependent. Um, I, I should have a sense of, 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 of Lord willing, and we'd be willing to let it go at that. Like, yeah, I could do better. Kind of like, yeah, that, that was rude of me. I should watch what I say. But there's more at stake here than just making a, a mistake in speech. James says, you boast. You put your confidence in the wrong thing. You exalt in the wrong thing. You rejoice in the wrong thing. That's what a boast means, is to place our confidence in something. And the object of boasting, he says, what do you boast in? You're boasting, not in your plan, but in your arrogance. The content of our boast, of our confidence, is arrogance. And, and in the Greek, the arrogance word is plural. You boast in your arrogances, and there's a lot of them. In your unquestioning assumption of a favorable outcome, that is what you're boasting in. You're boasting in your, 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 this godless confidence. 
You're boasting in this unwarranted trust in your own power, in your own wisdom, in your own resources. You're boasting in your empty presumptions. You're boasting in your reverent pride. You're boasting in your boastful haughtiness. That's what you're boasting in. You're not actually boasting in anything concrete. We're not boasting in something true. We're boasting in a boast. It's like a child boasting in the playground that they're the fastest runner in the world. Prove it. No, no, I'm, I, I am. The child boasting and saying, I'm the strongest man alive. That child boasting, my dad's the richest person in the world. What's all that boasting in? It's just boastings. It's, they're all, it's meaningless statements that aren't true. It's arrogance. It's cute when a kid says it. But what does James say? It's evil when we do it. When, when we describe it that way, it doesn't sound innocent. It's not. It's treason. It's a crime against God. It's us writing a fiction like we're the sovereigns in which we determine our own destiny. Everyone suspend disbelief for a minute. I'm going to be the creator, and I'm going to write out my plan for the world. I don't really care about the rest of the world, just my own world and what I would like to accomplish in these next few years. We put a fence around a section of our world where we believe it's going to work according to my laws, the laws of Isaiah, my plans, our ways, our wishes, what we deserve, what we can make happen, where we have autonomy, the agency to accomplish our goals, that we're the genie in our own little bottle. James says that this boasting and arrogance is evil. It's wicked. It's morally corrupt. It's it's. It's perverse. Now, as we think back about like the last time you made a statement, I'm going to go to college and do this. We're saving and then we're going to do this. Now, you could be making those statements with this mindset of, if the Lord wills, my life is his. But if you're not, James just says it's evil. That's, that's not really how we define sin, right? We make a list of evil things. There's the things that people go to jail for. Right? We don't think of this as evil. That's, that's, that's why James says that there's, that there's a maturity gap. It's a little shocking to us. It's so normal to live in our fantasies of what we want to accomplish. To live in our daydreams or, you know, it's, I think it's a little of what we try to do in video games, or vacation plans, or our portfolios, or our workshops. I mean, none of those things are wrong in themselves, but if we do them without God, they're godless. They're they're evil. Pretending to be a sovereign and acting our own plan is evil. I can think about when I was a child, and I still have these tendencies, not so much with toys, but but like I had a shelf... And I loved putting out my Star Wars figures. I had a lot of them. All kinds of Star Wars toys, a little Hoth scene, if you know what that is. You know, you, and an X-Wing, and I had all the figures standing up. And I remember a good friend tells me about how it was pretty clear he wasn't supposed to touch those. Now, I would play with them. But I didn't want anyone to mess with this little kingdom. Right? That's kind of what we do with our plans. Right? We just have this little kingdom of what our 
upcoming life is going to be like, maybe our day, maybe our week, our, 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 our vacation. It may be the general manager of a sports team putting his championship team together. Or our careful inspection of our spreadsheets and our finances, making sure everything is in place and our goal targets are online. The parents choosing the right preschool for the kids because you know it's, we, if we do this wrong, then they aren't going to get into Harvard or wherever our eyes are set. The student carefully choosing which AP classes to take to get into the university of their choice. So if we do this apart from God, it's boasting in our arrogances. It's like just, it's just looking ahead and saying, there's a new king in town, and I've got the resources to make this happen. James has such a radically different way for us to be. And if you've read through this, like many times, I don't know if you've ever been confused, why does he say this next in verse 17? So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You're like, ah, James has a little tack on there. It's almost like a postscript. Um, is it a separate paragraph by itself? Paragraphs are supposed to have one topic. The other verses are super clear. Uh, if you know Greek, paragraphs are not in the Greek. So they're like, maybe there should be a new indentation here. But we can see that so... And, uh, and maybe even the translators translate it so rather than therefore. It could be translated therefore, but the therefore isn't super clear. A lot of times the therefore is like we know why the there is therefore. But it, it could be therefore. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. And that therefore could be, and some people think this, well then don't boast because I just told you it's the wrong thing. So if you do the wrong thing, it's sin. Do the right thing instead and don't boast. But I think it's so much richer than, 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 than that. Um, now, James' statement isn't particularly surprising in, in itself, because I think that we would all say, sure, if we know the thing that we should do and we don't do it, it's sin. Now, that's big, because a lot of us know a lot of right things that we should do, but I think that it, it, it makes sense. And we know that God's commands aren't only not to do some things, like do not murder or do not commit adultery. Those are, those are God's commands. I think those are the ones that, that come to our mind first because maybe we haven't done them. But we also know that the right thing to do, those who know, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, you know, we know that the right thing is big, to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, that that's the right thing to do. In fact, James' letter has many right things. He, he, he's, he, he piles it on in this letter. Like James 1, verses 21 to 27. I'll read verses 21 and 22. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, just serving yourselves. That's the right thing to, to, to do. Verse 26, James 1. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Here's what religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That is the right thing to do. James 2, 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Uh, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, 
without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? That's the right thing to do. These are just a couple of the right things to do in James. In James 3, it talks about someone who's able to bridle his tongue. In James 3.10, from the same mouth shouldn't come blessing and cursing. James 3.13, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James 3, 17 to 18, the wisdom from above is pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and, 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 and sincere. James 4, 7 through 10, we, we've, we read this last week, submit yourselves to God, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, be wretched and mourn and weep, humble yourselves. These are the right things to do. I'm just flying through James. We, we, could, we could throw in... And we, well, I, yeah, we're going to. There's, there, there's others that we should do, but is that what we plan to do? Right? Is that what we plan to do? See, James is not throwing out a proverb. It's not just a quotable saying to help us when we're facing a difficult choice. You know, particularly when we don't want to do something. It's like, yeah, I should give them a phone call. Um, if anyone knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, it sins. Okay, I'll, I'll make the call. And that's, I think, a lot of times that we use it. But we're going to see that it's so much bigger than that. He, he does something that is foundational. He gives you a new starting point in your plan making. He gives you a whole new starting point in your plan making. It's, yes, and this is part of what the Lord willing is. He's going to tell you what you should do. It's the right. See, we are to begin our plans not with what we'd like to accomplish, with our lives or in our kids' lives or with our retirement or with our summer or with our, our Sunday, with our evening. But instead, we're to start our plan making with what is right what has God revealed to me about life as a creature, as his creature, redeemed by his son? What is the starting point? What has he spoken to me? See, because my life is not my own, but it belongs to him. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What is that price? 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Think about that with our plans. How many of the plans that we rattle off are just what our forefathers would have said, our fathers or our grandfathers, those who didn't know Christ, just like all the other plans in our neighborhood? No, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That is what you were bought with. You were bought with Jesus' blood to live in a completely different way. So how should I plan? Yes, we should remember that we are mortal, we're going to die, and we are finite, we're limited. And yes, we should plan remembering that God is sovereign if the Lord wills, but the starting point, the very beginning, has to be with us asking, what is right? Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I don't want to begin this plan, whether for your summer, for your day, for your college, for your retirement, without asking, but what is right? What is, what is right? What, is, what does God want me to do? 
It's not to be an afterthought. It's, it's not like a, of a, flight ch- of a, a flight check, you know, check, 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 make sure everything, okay, not breaking any commands here, take off, I can pursue my will. Just don't hit any commands on the way out, right? Like, my evening, now, I can't watch that movie. Movie, though, clear runway. Instead, but what is right? Now, this is not about movies being wrong or college being wrong or any of those things being wrong. It's about you having a starting point of what is right. What is God's instructions to me as a human? Commands like, number one, believe the gospel today. Continue steadfastly in prayer today. Meditate on his law day and night Make disciples. Do the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is the command not to pastors, but to the body. To love our wives, that's what it is for us today, husbands, in the month ahead, in the year ahead. To submit to our husbands, wives, to raise up our children in discipline and instruction of the Lord. For children to obey their parents regarding work. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Ephesians 4, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've called with humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. See, this is a beautiful plan that God has for us. This is what is right. Right? Is, is, is this what we're training our teens to think about? when they choose whether to go to college or not, or when they choose what college to go to or not, or what career they should take or not. This is, this is, this is the starting point. From here is the launching forth, and there's many places we can do these things. But if we fail to do these things, we've missed the whole thing. If we end up with a fatty retirement account and didn't spend our lives making disciples or meditating on his law day and night or doing the work of ministry or loving our wives like Christ loves the church, we haven't done the right thing. We've sinned. So when we're listening to God and his word, what it means to be his creature. Where we know what it is to be human. To be human is not to go to USC versus UCLA, although some of you would disagree. That's not what it is to be human. To be human is to serve. So, if you're thinking about college or your kid's college or whatever it is, a, a career path, what does it mean to be human? It means to be zealous for good works. It means to be making disciples. Is that on a college campus? Maybe. That's why I'm going then. What good works is, is, is this person going to do in this world? How did God make me? That's what I'm launching out to, right? Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, it fails to do it, for him it is sin. We don't want to launch with great plans that have ignored God's revelation, So because, because God is good, we can look forward to the commands he gives. We don't have to be overwhelmed looking at what is right. And yes, there's a lot of right, but it's a beautiful 
full and even, I would say, much more free life, right? Making disciples is for your good. Husbands, loving your wives as Christ loves the church is for your good, not just theirs. It's for your good. Training up our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord is for your good, right? Like, 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 like these commands, meditating on his law on day and night is for your good. It's because he loves you, and he knows what is best for you as a human. To, 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 to lose your life so that you gain it is for your good. To pick up your cross and follow him is for your good. These commands are not to crush you, but because he loves you. They're not burdensome. When you know how much he loves you in Christ Jesus, when, he knows, when you know the resources he's given you in Christ Jesus, these, these commands are beautiful. We don't have to be afraid of any responsibility that he gives, right? We don't have to be afraid of, of looking at them and saying, wow, there's kind of a lot there. Oh, wow, he, he's kind of a harsh taskmaster. He demands of me a lot. No, this is where freedom is. Right? It, it, it is a beautiful life, a life where we have so much more freedom to say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to go to this school. If the Lord wills, I'm going to retire at, at some day. But because you, you know what the main thing is, right? It's doing the right. We're stewards of the life that God's entrusted to us. It's to be used for his glory according to his instruction. Listen to the uh, 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 parable of, of, of money given to the stewards from Luke 19. And, and, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's 11 to 27. Luke 19, 11 to 27. I'm just going to read some, 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 some highlights. Verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, this, uh, um, this, 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 this owner, this landowner, this king, he gives them ten, ten minas. He gives them money. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. Right? He doesn't specifically tell them what kind of business, but be busy making money. And when he returns, Luke 19, verse 17, he said to him, who worked hard, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. He's like, good job. You engage in business until I returned. You listened to instructions. You spent your life doing the right thing. You didn't fail to do the right thing. But, but, but you, you meditated on my law day and night, right? You, 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 you raised your kids the way that Scripture told, me, told you to and not the way that the world did. You, you, you worked heartily as to the Lord and not to men. You, you, you listened hard to what the instructions I gave, and you put them into practice. Good job. And isn't that what we look forward to Jesus coming back and saying? You did the right thing. See, we don't have to worry about what, what college we go to as far as being the right thing. Right? That's not the right thing. It's not which career choice is the right thing. It's the commands that are the right thing. And that opens up a tremendous freedom for us as humans. Right? This owner here in this parable, he doesn't tell them specifically what business to invest in. It's important that they listen, but listen to the one who doesn't in Luke 19, 20 to 24. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your money back, your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. You're trying to profit off of my hard work. I didn't want to uh, risk anything, so here's your money back. And so he says to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. 
You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with, with, with interest? I will condemn you with your own words. This man didn't have the faith to engage in business. So you could make a lot of life plans. And it doesn't matter if you, I mean, for young people, if you go to college or if you work outside of college, never go, all those things are not the main thing. The main thing is, are you listening to your master? And are you willing to say, what he says is right, that is what I'm doing. What is right for me to do with this day? What is right for me to do with my life? What should my marriage be like? What is right for me as a parent? What's right for me as a child? What's right for me as a worker? What's right for me as a neighbor? What is right for me as a human? What is right for me, what is right for us as the world's rich? What is right, what is, what is right for us? I need to go and get instruction from his word. See, that is a far more humbling starting point than asking is what, if I, is what I've chosen acceptable? Like, like, will this choice pass God's muster? Am I, am I breaking any commands here? Is there anything wrong with it? It sounds wise to say, I'm going to go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Doesn't that sound wise? We criticize people who don't have plans like that. Instead, Trust this is why James says this here. We are to be asking ourselves as the starting point. Let's get back to basics. What is the right thing I am to do this day? Right? How many of us begin our plans saying, I'm a little, I'm starting the day behind. I stayed up late. I'm going to skip time talking to God. I'm going to skip any kind of dependency. I don't mean an hour-long quiet time. Just, I'm going to skip dependency because I don't have time. That's not the right way. Whoever knows the right thing to do it, to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So if, you've, if you're like me, you made many plans that have not started with the right things to do. From the daily to the weekly to the yearly to maybe big life choices. Maybe there's some checkboxing. But it's not been like, like, but what has he commanded me? What's his goodwill? Jesus made plans perfectly. And his starting point was always to do the will of the Father. What pleased the Father. Really, if you think about it, here, here we don't actually see, and I'm thinking about this, the kinds of plans that Jesus makes, right? He, his will was to do the Father's will. We know that ultimately he obeyed the Father going to the cross. But as far as like, well, I'm going to, he doesn't lay out his three-year plan. John 6, 38 says, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That is why you live, not to do our will, but the will of him who sent me. Not to do what's right in our eyes, but what's right in his eyes. In the garden on the night of his death, Jesus prays, and Jesus said to his disciples, 
My soul is very sorrowful. This is Matthew 26, 38 and 39. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was totally committed to doing the Father's will. That, that, was, that was his whole life. Jesus did the Father's will for a reason. That reason was so that he could take the punishment of our sins. Right? That is what Jesus was, was praying about that night. That when he was crucified in the place of sinners, to take the punishment for what? For what's evil, right? An independent life of choosing our own way, of living with ourself as king. So Jesus, Jesus died to save us from this evil of boasting and so that we can live for his will instead of for our plans. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, um, I come before you wanting to be humble, dependent, and needy, and I pray that for all of us. Father, I know that you have given us lives that we are responsible for, and we have to make decisions. Lord, I pray that you would rescue us from this evil of boasting, and even at times some kind of heart that gives lip service, willing to say if the Lord wills, but really it's just us enacting our plan um, for the day, for the years, regardless of you. I pray, Father, that you would help us instead to do the right thing, to have you as our starting point, to listen to you and to the commands of your word, and to be really so much more concerned about our character and about our conduct than about our calendars, about our financial plans, about the years ahead. And please, Father, help us to learn uh, from Jesus what it is to be human and to um, take as our food this day to do your will. Help us to learn uh, dependent, to learn to live dependently, Lord. And uh, thank you. We need uh, the sacrifice of your son in our place. And without his uh, death, we don't have any hope. But thank you, Lord, that you're willing to forgive us for really of this high-handed uh, treason. In Jesus' name, amen.